0: It's a massive funneling of wealth upward, and they're not even really trying to hide it anymore.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial free versions of every episode, plus members only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The David Pacman Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Economic Update, and Off Kilter.
2: The other day, Arthur Laffer appeared on Fox Business to explain the concept that he invented 40 years ago called the Laffer curve, which he supposedly wrote on the back of a napkin. And Arthur Laffer suggested that. If you cut taxes on wealthy people, they will then engage in a lot more economic activity, which will actually generate more tax revenue because they'll be doing so much more business that the money will increase because of volume. He is uh, one of the godfathers of supply side economics. Here he is explaining what's going to happen. If the Senate cuts taxes, it's actually going to get us more tax revenue.
3: Harry he talks about it. Uh, the, <laughs> what it does, what the one and a half trillion does, and uh, I think it's primarily from Corker, and, and uh, I credit him for this. It gives some of the Republicans who really believe in these pay force uh, uh, an out to vote for the corporate tax cut. And I hope that's what they do. Uh, I don't want to see it go to twenty percent. I wanted to see it go to fifteen percent. That would be really be the the stimulus to get this economy going. And let me just say, Ashley, if I may, on this, yes. If you cut that tax rate to fifteen percent, it will pay for itself many times over. Not only in economic growth, but in reduced sheltering, reduced fraud, and 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 uh, tax evasion, bringing businesses back from abroad, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary taxes, state and local taxes. All of those will increase in addition to economic growth, jobs, output, and employment. So this will bring in probably a trillion and a half net by itself. Uh, But what Corker has done with that one and a half trillion is given a lot of Republicans an opening to be able to vote for this without destroying, quote unquote, the budget.
2: Yeah, so there it is. The theory that Arthur Laffer is promoting is that if we cut taxes, we're actually going to drive revenue through the roof. And all I can say is this.
0: I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
2: Right. That's it. Right there. We don't need anything else. And why do I say that? Uh, as reported in May of this year, Kansas is broke. Last month, Donald Trump's two key economic allies, Munchen and Gary Cohn, unveiled the outline of Donald Trump's much trailed tax plan, the biggest tax cuts in history, says this piece in The Guardian. The plan's similarity to the one that has left Kansas in crisis is quote, unbelievable, according to Dwayne Goosen, the former Kansas secretary of administration. The economic spirit behind Trump's plan? Arthur Laffer. He was one of the architects of Kansas Governor Sam Brownback's original tax plan. When Brownback outlined his plan in 2012, he too said tax cuts would pay for themselves. He too said tax cuts would benefit everybody. They would be a shot of adrenaline to the heart of the Kansan economy, said Goosen. Instead, Goosen claims the money has gone to a small group of wealthy Kansans while the state's budget has been left with a roughly $1 billion shortfall. This is not the federal government, folks. This is a state government. States cannot print their own money. Its school system, once a crown jewel, has suffered year after year of cuts. Its savings are gone. The nonpartisan tax policy center calculates Trump's tax plan would cost $6.2 trillion over the first decade. We are a cautionary tale, said Goosen. It sounds great. Everybody gets a tax cut and it'll balance, but it just doesn't work. In fact, in 2014, Brownback, when he was campaigning for his reelection, said his plan would add 100,000 new jobs over four years. By March of 2017, the state had added just 12,400 private sector jobs. It's not even keeping up with its neighbors. Kansas uh, hiring increased by 0.3% in 2016. Missouri's was 1.4%. And the prop of Brownback's plan, as with Trump's, a huge cut to taxes paid by limited liability companies or so-called pass-through businesses. Small business owners like myself have things like LLCs or S-Corps. And the idea would be you would cut income taxes for those people because they're doing it through an LLC. And those business would then go out and invest and create new jobs. Kansas had 190,000 LLCs. In four years, it has added 110 to 300,000 LLCs. And according to Goosen, there is no evidence whatsoever this plan worked. Yet, Arthur Laffer is met with anything but laughter on these shows. And that's the only thing he should be met with. He's a joke. He's a joke. I mean, it's. The funny thing is, like, if you were to write this character into. A novel. You would probably name him the exact same thing
4: yeah he's a total laugher for sure very aptly named. would you say a uh, a joke or a con artist?
2: I mean Both? he's a con artist, but by this point it should be a joke right i mean it's not like we have we have direct evidence of the failure of cutting taxes as a means of driving. Uh, economic expansion and wouldn't the spin be i bet it would say like oh i destroyed kansas but that's just because there's still too much federal
5: intervention that right, strangled right. kansas Except for
2: there's the exact same federal intervention in the states that border it and they did much better
6: Republicans are responsible for creating some very, um, uh, stick to the wall myths about tax cuts, myths that have really stuck around and are often repeated. Uh, For example, they like to say that high taxes and high tax rates created stagflation in the 1970s. So stagflation is high inflation plus high unemployment with sort of stagnant demand in a country's economy. Uh, they like to say that Reagan cutting taxes back in 1981, for example, launched this amazing period of economic growth. That is a lot of what the supply side defenders base their defense of cutting taxes for the rich on. And when you look into the details, it falls apart in an instant. The truth is that there was a huge interest rate reduction by the federal reserve that coincided it with Ronald Reagan's actions in the early eighties. When you cut the federal funds rate, that stimulates the economy in the short run. Now there's debates to be had and we've had them and and all sorts of economists from Robert Reich to Paul Krugman and right wing economists have weighed in on the impact of low federal funds, interest rates over the long term. But in the short term, you have huge economic upticks as a result of lowering of the federal funds rate. In addition, at the same time that Reagan was doing this. There was major infrastructure spending. This included highway construction that combined with the end of the recession that had been taking place is actually what's responsible for the uh, optimistic positive economic indicators that coincided, but did not, uh, were not caused by Ronald Reagan's adjustments to taxes. Another canard from the low tax right is if you cut taxes for the rich. It's good for the economy, I guess, because either the rich will spend their money or they'll hire people in their businesses or for some other reasons. But that's a common one from the right. The reality is that's just not true. And I've explained this concept before. It's the economic concept of the marginal propensity to consume. If you're really rich and your taxes are lowered and now you have a little more money, You never needed that money for your day to day life unless you're incredibly bad with money. So you're not that likely to reinsert that money into the economy. You're probably going to save a lot of that money if you give a tax cut to people who earn a lot less where they would use that tax cut to fund their day to day life. That is way more economically stimulative. So that argument doesn't make any sense. Then you go to corporations. The right likes to say. American corporations are just too highly taxed. Let's cut taxes for corporations and it'll stimulate the, uh, the economy. That makes absolutely no sense. Capital investment by business owners is already tax deductible. When you think about what that means, if you are a business owner and the tax rate is really high, you can avoid a high tax rate by investing money in your business because it lowers your taxable income. In fact, that suggests that higher corporate tax rates actually would incentivize businesses to reinvest capital by buying stuff or improving or hiring or whatever, but it actually doesn't make sense either. And I've been clear about why, because Donald Trump's tax proposal for me, it would be good, right? I have a business that is a corporation an S corporation meaning that there is pass-through income. Donald Trump's tax proposal would create a new 25% tax rate for pass-through income. That's the situation I'm in with the show. But that doesn't mean that it's good economics. If my taxes um, go down for the income that passes through to me on the program, then I am more incentivized not to invest that money into the show. Think about it. If you lower the rate, I can keep the shows money at, I am more likely to keep the shows money. I I think if I wanted to do an expansion of the show or new programming or get better equipment or whatever, the money I spend will reduce the taxes to zero on that expenditure. I'm more likely to do that if taxes are higher and I'm not suggesting that I actually make decisions based on tax rates. Very few businesses actually do. But this concept that if you lower the tax rate on businesses, all of a sudden they're going to reinvest a ton of that money into the economy is just not true. Now, depending on my personal financial situation or someone else's, I might spend that extra money that I get to keep. I might save that extra money that I get to keep, but that's a decision made at the personal level and the stimulus that these folks claim will happen from lowering the corporate tax rate just will not happen. The entire supply side tax cut right wing thing is merely a ruse and it's a ruse that Trump and his friends will be able to save a lot of money with.
7: key part of the Republican tax plan, CNBC explained, quote, isn't the individual or even the corporate tax rates. The big news is that it doubles the standard deduction and provides significant relief and simplicity for most taxpayers, close quote. And just to be clear, they added, quote, this should be the focus of the tax reform debate, not the endless old argument about benefits for the rich, close quote. A separate report noted that administration officials are abandoning their oft-voiced deficit concerns because of the amazing growth the plan will generate. What's a layperson to think? Here to help us understand is economist Dean Baker, co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He joins us now by phone from D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dean Baker. Thanks for me on. Well, to the extent that there is an endless old argument about benefits for the rich, it seems clear that the rich keep winning it. So is this doubling of the standard deduction? Does that make the case that, contrary to all expectation, this is tax reform for the little guy?
8: No, and it's kind of incredible anyone really even try to pass that off, because Coupling with doubling the standard deduction, they're eliminating the personal exemption. So the basic story, uh, I showed the exact numbers, but the current standard deduction is roughly $6,000 and change. So they double it to $12,000 and change, and they're getting rid of the personal exemption, which is roughly $4,800. Now, that puts you up somewhat ahead, but there are two points to keep in mind. One is that the personal exemption increases with inflation, at least that's the current law. So... 10 years from now, it'd be roughly 20% higher. It'd be roughly 6,000, basically putting you even. The other part of the story is that they're actually raising the tax rate. The bottom tax rate's currently 10%. They would raise it to 12%. Now, one of the things they haven't filled in is where all the rates would cut off, where exactly the brackets would be. But in any case, doubling the standard deduction is likely to mean very little for most people, which is part of the reason that most of the estimates show roughly 80% of the benefits going to the richest 1%. <laughs> so I could understand the people in richest 1% telling us not to pay attention, but that's a big deal.
7: CNBC, that same piece, says that it's uh, about as far as you can get from tax plans that supposedly only favor the 1% or rely on trickle-down theories to boost the overall economy. Hmm.
8: You know, the only thing I could say, if you want to be generous, is maybe they were confused and missed the part about uh, eliminating the personal exemption, which... Would be kind of astounding. It's clear the bulk of the benefits are going to the richest one percent. You get rid of the estate tax. You lower the the top tax bracket thirty nine to thirty five percent. You have a special tax rate for for pass through income like what Donald Trump gets uh, his income through at just twenty five percent. These are benefiting the rich and no one else.
7: I couldn't really think that any thinking person imagined that the plan would not benefit Trump himself. I would think his base would think he was a fool for making a plan that wouldn't benefit himself. You know, that's not the winner they voted for. Is there more to say about the part of the plan that CNBC says we should look away from, you know, what it does for the wealthy?
8: Well, you know, in terms of benefiting Trump, it is almost as though he designed a plan that would personally benefit him. I mean, I don't quite think that's the case, but you know, again I'd mentioned the estate tax that it would get rid of that. Just to be clear, the estate tax applies to almost no one. It it allows personal exemptions of $5 million. So that means a couple gets to exempt $10 million and that's roughly two-tenths of 1% of the states that get above $10 million. You have to be pretty well off. That's not just a successful small business person. He also proposes getting rid of the alternative minimum tax And in the one tax reform that was leaked or he released, however we got it, that became public, he was subject to alternative minimum taxes. This was put in place in the 86 tax reform, saying if you manage to reduce your tax liability by getting through all these other loopholes, you have to at least pay 25% in the alternative minimum tax. So he gets rid of that. And then the pass-through business income. Basically, it makes zero sense. The, the, the notion of a pass-through corporation is the corporation itself pays zero tax. You just pass the profits on. I mean, to my view, that's kind of an outrage to begin with, because at least if they get protection as a corporation, limited liability, why shouldn't they pay tax? But in any case, we do that. So they pay zero tax, and then they pass it on to an individual, and you're taxed on it just like, you know, your wage income, it says ordinary income. What this says is, no, it doesn't matter what tax bracket you're in. So if you're in the highest tax bracket, if you're in the 39% bracket or 35 under their plan, you would still only pay tax at 25% rate because it came through a pass-through corporation. It's just kind of a head-scratcher. Why would you do that? Naturally, it would create a huge business and tax avoidance because everyone, at least every wealthy person, is going to figure out how to have their income come through a pass-through corporation so they could have a 10% point reduction in their tax rates. Not what you want to do with tax reform.
7: Well, a headline in the New York Times said, in Trump tax plan, a windfall for businesses large and small. Among the things that it indicates are, an easy way to bring overseas profits back to the United States without being taxed. What am I missing about what's so great for the country at large to let corporations bring profits back without those profits being taxed?
8: Well, there's a couple issues here. First off, there's already roughly $2 trillion, I mean, we don't have an exact number, but somewhere in the order of $2 trillion in foreign profits of U.S. corporations that are stashed overseas, at least on paper. Those currently couldn't come back unless they were taxed. What they're proposing is to have some tax holiday. We did this in 2005 where it was brought back at a 5% tax rate where they could bring it back and pay very little tax on it. So it says it's going to do that, but it doesn't say what the rate is. That's one of the things, I guess, to be decided later, Um, kind of a big thing. But the other thing that's, of course, more consequence going forward is it shifts our tax to a territorial tax. And what that would mean is that corporations would only be taxed on their U.S. profits, whatever they earn overseas, they pay zero U.S. tax on. Now, that's not particularly any boon to the U.S., but it gets worse because we don't know where corporations are actually getting their profits so we've just given them a huge incentive to lie to us about where their profits are and that's becoming increasingly easy because you have companies like uh, apple and pfizer and others where much or all of their profit is associated with intellectual property claims and we don't know where apple's great innovation for the iphone came from so they're going to tell us it came in ireland where the tax rate is just twelve point five percent and then they don't have to pay our tax rate they'll just pay ireland's tax rate I have a hard time seeing why it's good for people in the United States.
7: Well, the plan, of course, is still evolving. um, But the New York Times says, quote, business leaders were nonetheless quick to applaud the broad outlines of the proposal, claiming that tax cuts would spur new investment and grow the economy. Close quote. I wonder if I could ask you first what it actually means to grow the economy. And then does this plan do that?
8: Well, it's an improper use of the word grow, but that dates back to Bill Clinton, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's supposed to be transitive, but make the economy grow, in other words, would be the way one would ordinarily say it, but that's, I guess, passe to use the correct grammar. But in any case, it would mean more rapid economic growth, but you're very hard-pressed to see how that would come from this plan. So the question is, would there be some spurt of investment? And a lot of research on this issue, the idea that you're going to get lower tax rates are going to lead to more investment I guess it's going you know, to lead to zero more investment, but certainly not any big flood of more investment. And the idea would have a measurable uptick in growth. That's really not a plausible story. So, you know, their claims, they're talking about increasing growth rate by a percentage point. They're just pulling numbers out of the air. They're, there's literally nothing to support that.
7: Finally, I find the approach of a lot of coverage disconcerting, whether Trump Republicans will get a win after their loss on ACA repeal. But also coverage sort of separates and counterposes individuals and businesses and the economy at large, almost as if those were competing forces. But clearly I can gain something as an individual, but lose it again and then some if the labor market is impacted and then again if the broader economy is harmed in some way. Is there a better way to talk about tax policy?
8: Certainly, again, the wind stuff, the horse race stuff, there's a lot of that. And, you know, that's unfortunate. I mean, people want to read that, and that's okay, but that shouldn't be the dominant story. And, unfortunately, it takes that form. But one of the things that you and I both have alluded to, it's not a complete plan, which is a a little bit astounding given that they were working on it for months and they'd been talking about tax reform literally for years, that they throw this on the table. And, in fact, uh, the president's chief economic advisor, Kevin Hassett, criticized the analyses because they said, well, they're making analyses of partial plans. And he's right. But why are they putting a partial plan on the table? The other point, though, is, yes, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, people want to know how this is going to affect their lives. And on the one hand, there's sort of the immediate impact. Okay, am I going to pay more in taxes? That's kind of hard to say at this point for most people. I mean, odds are for most people it won't mean much difference. It will for the rich and the very rich. The other part is, okay, let's carry through their logic what would it mean, you know, you'd asked the question before about grow the economy. So what would that mean? What's a plausible story there? Well, the story they would like to tell is, okay, you'll have more growth. That will mean higher wages, more jobs. That's the story they would like to tell. There's really no plausible way of getting from here to there. And then if you add in, you go, okay, you're creating large deficits. I mean, they're denying this, and I'm not the big deficit hawk, but you are creating large deficits, and there's good reason to believe that the day after they pass this thing, they'll start screaming about deficits, and then they'll say, okay, we have to cut spending. And they're not going to be cutting the military. So what that means is they'll be cutting Medicare and Medicaid, maybe Social Security, who knows what will be on the chopping block, but these are going to be programs that people depend on.
1: As always, I want to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, listeners like Chris F. and Timothy A., both of whom went above and beyond signing up as professional protester-level members, so huge thanks to them for their support and to all other members and donors who help keep this show going. Now, members get access to a special members podcast feed that you can subscribe to just as you would with any other podcast, which includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members only bonus content. And I mentioned before that there was a lost commentary that I had been prepping for the show, and it didn't quite come out the way I wanted. So that ended up being one member's uh, bonus show, uh, just because I couldn't figure out how to end it. But the good news is that recently, you know, between one bonus show and the next, I sort of figured out what I had been trying to uh, figure out. I figured out how to end that commentary. So the most recent bonus show, included that conclusion to the Lost Commentary. I'm sure the members were just waiting with bated breath for me to figure that out. Uh, But also, Amanda and I talked in some depth about the effects of power on the powerful. You know, having a deeper understanding of why those in power act the way they do, It doesn't exactly make you feel better about the state of the world, but it does make you feel a little bit less lost. So we discussed an article from the Greater Good Science Center to get some insight on why powerful people tend to act more like sociopaths, uh, which is pretty relevant to today's politics. Now would be a great time to start supporting the show. As I've mentioned recently, we're in a bit of an advertiser drought, which makes membership contributions even more important than usual. So whether you can chip in a buck or 20 each month. Please think about signing up to help us out. Not to mention, of course, you're receiving instant access to all of those member benefits. So find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. Thanks so much for your support.
9: Once in a while, Chris Wallace makes a lot of sense on Fox News, and he does a pretty decent job challenging someone that he's interviewing. Case in point his recent interview with Nick Mulvaney, who is the White House budget director. Now, Mulvaney went on Fox News expecting to, you know, prop up their tax reform policy. But Chris Wallace actually challenged him pretty aggressively and it was awesome. Now it mostly had to do with the idea that the rich are not gonna get a tax cut, which we all know that's a lie. And the idea that the growth in the economy will help pay for the tax cuts that some Americans will get. Now Chris Wallace isn't buying it and he had the data to prove it.
10: The nonpartisan tax policy center did this analysis, it shows the middle fifth of households in America. America, those earning between forty eight eighty six thousand dollars a year they 'll get an average tax cut of six hundred and sixty dollars next year. Meanwhile, the top one percent people making more than $730,000 a year, will get an average tax cut of almost $130,000 next year. Now, I understand that you're, that this isn't done yet, that they're only basing it on the plan as it exists at this point. But according to their analysis, that middle fifth gets 1.5% of the total benefit of the tax cut, while the top 1% gets 8.5% of the benefit. That, that, that doesn't seem fair.
11: Sure, a couple of different things, and I obviously I can't see the graph that you just put up, but I think that I have seen it previous to this. And what I think that particular organization did was, number one, they didn't do any dynamic scoring. If you go look at the the details of what they put out, they assumed no benefit to the overall economy, which is just absurd to think that there won't be any economic I'm not talking, uh, sir, I'm not talking about the, the
10: economy, I'm talking about the, the benefit to no, no, the individual let, let me family, finish.
11: the tax cut they gap. I got it but let me go through you you can't look at the tax cut on a family until you realize how how much better off they're going to be in a growing economy. Okay, so let's break this down. Uh first of all, even Chris Wallace's numbers don't do justice
4: to the gross inequality uh that this tax cut presents. That in fact and they made a terrible mistake here. Some uh politically the Republicans said some people making between 100,000 and 300,000 will actually have their taxes increased. Now, Uh, they're not huge donors, but those are very politically relevant folks. The top 10%, uh, this is borne out by a Princeton study, uh, are a huge driver in policy. There's a lot more of them that are in positions of power. They might not be at the very top of the power echelon, but saying, hey, I'm gonna increase your taxes, but not the taxes of millionaires and billionaires. I'm gonna lower their taxes. That is a Terrible political idea, and that was not in the chart because some ta- taxes do get raised, and so then, secondarily, the top uh richest people in the country are actually going to get tens of millions of dollars in personal income cuts, let alone the benefits they get from the corporate tax cuts, mm-hmm. the estate tax cuts, et etc, which will get into the billions of dollars for some families so even Chris Wallace's devastating chart was not devastating enough. Right. And then he goes to Mulvaney, and Mulvaney's answer is like, dynamic scoring, it's gonna be dynamic. So if you've never heard of that, that it is the BS that Republicans use to say, yeah, it looks like we're giving a giant tax cut to the rich, and you're getting squat, right? But don't worry, that will magically improve the economy so much that you won't be making 300,000 anymore or 30,000 or wherever your income bracket was. Instead of making 300,000, you'll not be making 3 million and then getting tax cuts. (laughs) The economy does not work that way. That's a unicorn, that's magic, that's nonsense.
9: So whenever I see this type of content on Fox News, like it, it appears pretty shocking, right? Because this isn't the kind of stuff that you would experience watching Fox. You would usually see them cheerleading, whatever it is that Trump wants to do. But then I realized, the reason why this will play well, this segment will play well with Fox's audience is because Fox's audience isn't made up of millionaires and billionaires. Fox's audience is made up of people who were sick and tired of the system that we had in place before electing Trump. A lot of these people elected Trump, unfortunately, because they thought that he would be a little different, that he would shake up the system and actually look out for working class and middle class Americans. Now we know that that's not what he actually wants to do, but Fox is aware that their audience are not in favor of giving the most powerful, the most wealthy people gigantic tax cuts. And they're also not buying the whole trickle down economics thing. I'm sure some are, but I think most Americans know through this massive long term case study that we've had that we, we don't get trickled on. Okay. <laughs> and it's also incredibly insulting for us to like sit around and hope that these big corporations and these big CEOs will trickle on us.
4: Yeah. And, but there's an important caveat, part of that explanation, which is that. But Fox News used to not tell you that and not tell their audience that even though it would be a popular position even with their audience, as Anna rightly points out. It's because Roger Ailes used to run Fox News and Roger Ailes is a Republican political operative. He worked for Nixon, Reagan, George HW Bush and he helped George W Bush as well. So he would lie to the audience over and over again and pretend the tax cuts for the rich would actually benefit them. Now that he's not there anymore, The Chris Wallace of the world, even though they're conservative, are free to go. Wait a minute. Yeah. Here's something that doesn't actually help even our audience.
9: Right, and and by the way, credit where credit is due, because Chris Wallace is wealthy. I mean, he's a host on Fox News. I'm sure that you know he will benefit from these massive tax cuts. And the fact that he challenged Mulvaney is something that you know deserves credit. So I just wanted to put that out there. Agree. All right, uh, let's go to the next video. There's more of this.
11: It's impossible to do what the National Tax Center just did. So, um, my guess is, and I think that's the one that Jared Bernstein works for. It's not surprising that, um, you know, a former chief economist for a Democrat vice president doesn't like a Republican tax plan. So I, I don't put very much a, weight on a that. It's a nonpartisan,
10: particular it's a nonpartisan group. First of all, sir. Okay. No, they did math. Okay. I, I
4: know that you have got a war on math. So uh, they, their point is, uh, that look, and, Could tax cuts stimulate the economy a little bit? Historically, they have not, as Chris Wallace is gonna get into. So they're usually counterproductive when taxes are, in fact, this low for the rich, and they are. Especially when you put the loopholes in, they are at historically low rates. As a percentage of the taxes paid by the different brackets in America, historic lows. And when you cut taxes further, it's counterproductive. But even if it were to actually stimulate the economy, it would only do so by a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Not by the gigantic. Uh, factor that the Trump administration is putting and the reason they do that is cuz they wanna fudge the numbers. They're like, well, under this plan, we're never gonna balance the budget. Mm -hmm. And because they don't care about balancing the budget, they just wanna get the tax cuts to the rich. But they have to pretend to balance the budget for a number of reasons, including being able to pass it with just 50 votes instead of 60 votes. So it is super important to them to keep up that lie, and here's Chris Wallace breaking that lie apart. And I think the next clip is even better, so let's watch
10: that. The Senate Republican budget plan calls for a tax cut that is gonna cost the Treasury one and a half trillion dollars over the next ten years. And some outside experts say that the plan that was unveiled this week actually will add two trillion dollars to the debt over the next ten years. Now back when you were in Congress, you were a deficit hawk.
11: What happened, sir? Let's talk about it because I've been very candid about this. We need to have new deficits because of that. We need to have the growth, Chris. If we simply look at this as being deficit neutral, you're never going to get the type of tax reform and tax reductions that you need to get to sustained 3% economic growth. If we had been at 3% growth over the last 10 years, the budget very nearly would be balanced this year. That's how big a difference it makes when you grow the American economy, that additional 1% over 10 years. Over the next 10 years. If we can grow at 3% instead of the 1.8% that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says that we're going to grow at and has been the average under the previous administration, if we can get to that 3%, it is 2 to $2.5 trillion worth of more government revenues. It's 12 million additional jobs, and those are 12 million jobs paying into Medicare, 12 million jobs paying into Social Security. Growth really is what's driving all of this, and growth is what our focus is, which is why we're willing to accept increased short-term deficits in exchange for that Long-term payoff. Growth works. Doing in the administration to spur growth in terms of regulatory reform work. And what we're working on right now is to make sure that those tax cuts add to that. Okay. So Obama
4: actually let's go back further. Clinton hands George W. Bush a surplus.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Bush turns that into a $1.2 trillion deficit. Okay? He hands that off to Obama. Obama cuts it in half. But the entire time that he's cutting the deficit, Nick Mulvaney is in Congress screaming, and that was what Chris Wallace was referring to, Mm -hmm. about we can't have any deficits. I can't believe Obama has deficits, forgetting the fact that Trump, I mean, Bush handed him a $1.2 trillion deficit, Uh okay, but he has deficits, right? Now, you just heard him right there. He said, we need to have new deficits. Now that the Republicans are back in charge, deficits are wonderful, they grow their economy. What Of course, they're great. But this is actually part of a plan hatched by the Republicans under Nixon when Ailes was in the Nixon administration. And there are internal memos about it where they say, hey, let us Whenever we're in charge, let's spend a lot more money. Let's cut taxes so we can stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. In their mind, to be fair to them, they thought stimulating the economy, cutting taxes would stimulate the economy. And they thought spending more stimulates the economy. So let's do it when the Republicans are in charge. But as soon as the Democrats gets in charge, make sure we yell and scream about deficits. So they make the mistake of not stimulating the economy. Mm-hmm. And then we'll blame them for a poor economy. Yeah. They've been playing this year and he just did it. The guy who was the biggest deficit hawk in Congress said we need new deficits.
9: I know, it's amazing. Um, I feel like every time you say the word deficits though, you have to do that hand gesture that you do. Deficits. deficits. <laughs> I didn't
4: even realize you, I was you doing always it. That's do that. Awesome. <laughs> deficits. All right, I want to give uh, Chris Walls one more piece of credit here. And always credit where credit is due no matter what has happened in the past. He pointed out later in the segment that Reagan tax cut back in 1981 that the Republicans loved to crow about actually added $208 billion to the deficit. It did, the dynamic scoring did not help with that deficit. It made it worse. And the Bush tax cuts in 2001 and 2003 added $1.5 trillion to our debt. It yeah. did not work. Dynamic scoring is total horse crap. And the reality is, all it does is give tax cuts to the rich and settle us with huge deficits and debt.
12: Let's talk about the multi-trillion dollar hoard parked in Ireland, Luxembourg, and other tax havens by US corporations. In 2004, they convinced the Congress to cut the tax rate if they repatriated some of this money in order to jumpstart the economy. They were going to invest in productive equipment, and they were going to really put it back in the economy. What happened was... They got the break through Congress. They took the money. They put billions and billions of dollars in useless stock buybacks, which don't create any jobs, and to raise their own salaries. In other words, they double-crossed the Congress. And there are still members in the House and Senate who remember that double-cross and have talked about it recently. So now they're at it again. It's probably close to $2.5 trillion. And they want to be able to bring it back. They haven't paid any federal taxes on this. And and a lot of this money was rooted in U.S.-based profit making. They haven't paid any federal tax on this. So they're pushing for a 5% tax. They bring it back. And there's really no requirement that they have to put it in productive investment activity, is there? No. And whatever
13: strings they put there, there's plenty of ways for them to get around them. You know, it ends up mostly going back into dividends and into the profits of the corporation into to the uh, stockholders.
12: Why don't you uh, give our listeners a frame of reference here? Back in the 1950s, the corporate tax revenues were X percent of federal revenues, and now they're Y percent of federal revenues. Can you fill in those blanks? Actually, I
13: don't have that number off the top of my head, but I do know that the number has gone down drastically over the last 30, 40
12: years. Yeah, um, my recollection is it was over 30% in the 1950s and now it fluctuates between 8 and 7 or 9 or 6%, depending on the year. And if you take that money and subtract from it the corporate welfare payments, what your career professionals call tax expenditures, <laughs> is there a chance that we could conclude Alan Essek, that basically the corporations don't pay any taxes. I know 60% of corporations don't pay any taxes anyway, federal income tax. General Electric, Verizon went years making billions of dollars in U.S.-based taxes and didn't pay any federal income tax. But if you told it all up and subtracted the tax expenditures,
13: is it coming close to zero? On many profitable corporations, it is. The CTJ sister organization, Institute of Taxation Economic Policy, ITEP, has put out a report within the last four or five months that looked at how much taxes the Fortune 500 corporations have paid. And many have paid zero, many have paid you know 4%, 5%, 8%. So when the president talks about a 35% corporate rate being uncompetitive, the reality is most corporations don't pay anything close to that. So the problem is not that corporations are paying too much. Or that we're uncompetitive with other countries, the problem, quite frankly, is that corporations aren't paying their fair share. They're not paying enough. We need to, you know, instead of worrying about dropping the corporate tax rate, we should be looking at closing these loopholes and having profitable corporations at least start to pay something
12: before and we start talking about lowering rates. And your predecessor, Bob McIntyre, has said on a number of occasions that. In the 1960s, when the corporate tax rates was much higher than they are now, the economy was much more prosperous. What the right wing refuses to admit is that public investment requires revenues. If you want to repair your bridges, your schools, your highways, your public transit, your water and sewage systems, which have now a deferred maintenance bill of over $4.5 trillion, according to the American Society of Civil Engineers... $4.5 trillion, a lot of jobs. You've got to have tax revenues. And the problem now is this. These corporations are swarming over Congress saying, give us a tax cut, give us a tax cut, because we want to invest more in our economy. And the members of Congress are not saying, you're just lying because you're using huge hordes of your own capital to buy back your stock in order to set it up for higher value stock options and other compensation performance standards for the pay of the CEO and the presidents and vice presidents of your company. Why isn't anybody saying, Alan Essex, that they don't need these tax cuts for a more capital investment? They're burning capital with these stock
13: buybacks. Businesses today, the problem is not a lack of profitability corporations are probably as profitable, if not more profitable, than they've ever been. We have a problem of demand. We don't have enough, you know, working folks don't have enough money to buy things. And that demand is what causes jobs to be created and businesses to be created. Giving more money to corporations that are already profitable is not going to create any jobs if there's no one out there buying their products.
12: Yeah, there's not a capital need either because... What you just said, the flip side of that is they're piling up here and abroad trillions of dollars. This has never happened before. They don't know what to do with their money. That's why they do stock buybacks. As more than a few corporate experienced observers have told me over the years, when you hear about a big company that buys back its stock, like Walmart has spent over $55 billion buying back its stock, they say this is not good management. They should be Shoring up the pension fund. They should be buying more capital equipment for productive activity. Or paying the workers more. Or paying the workers more. So, this is a strong argument, listeners, you can make with your senator's representative just to totally rebut them on this. And when you hear Grover Norquist say the other day that these tax cuts are pay increases, they don't have a cost, he said. They're pay increases. You've pointed out how little, if anything, the middle class. Gets under this bill, but the better way to increase consumer demand is to increase the federal minimum wage, which has been frozen at seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour. That's the way you get higher consumer demand. And if it was inflation-adjusted since 1968, the federal minimum wage would be eleven dollars now. That's tens of billions of dollars that folks can spend for the necessities of life and inject more consumer demand in the economy. Is that being discussed in the context of this tax bill?
13: Well, from my understanding, the advocate community, the folks who care about this, try to bring it up all the time. But within the uh, current administration and the current congressional leadership, I have not heard those
12: kind of arguments. You see, the way to go after this tax cut for the rich is a broader context, like we're discussing on this program. You can't just get into the Republican Party cul-de-sac and try to bat your way out of it. You got to show a broader context of factors like stock buybacks, like freezing the minimum wage, like this phony repatriation promise of the trillions overseas by U.S. companies in return for a minuscule federal income tax.
5: Turn next to the way the money is raised, putting aside for the moment how it's spent. The money is raised. Well, we have basically three or four categories of money coming into the federal government. One, and the one talked about the most, is the income tax. Less than half of the federal government's money comes from the income tax. Let me make sure everybody gets that. Less than half of the government in Washington's money comes from the income tax. And the income tax is a progressive tax. What that means is, the higher your income, the higher the percentage of it that you are required to pay. And the basic principle behind the income tax is, as it always has been, that those who are richer are more able to pay... And that fairness requires that we take more from those more able to pay as we might in a family or a community that needed to raise money from its members. But only half is raised in this progressive way, the progressive income tax. The second biggest source of money is this odd thing called a payroll tax. And here again, I want to quarrel with the name. It's money taken out of our paycheck. That's why it's called a payroll tax. But it's money to be set aside to cover our old age payments out of Social Security, certain payments out of Social Security for survivors who, of uh, Spouses who die early, things like that. People with certain kinds of injuries and incapacitations. And the Medicare, Medicaid kind of helping people who have, uh, emergency fi- uh, medical needs that they can't pay for. And we put that it's a kind of social insurance. In other countries, it's called social insurance in order to distinguish it from a tax payment, which doesn't have this put the money in, get the money out for yourself. Kind of arrangement. It's a the word tax is used for those more general payments. In any case, the payroll tax comes at in at one third. So if you put it together roughly, the um, the income tax and the payroll tax that's three quarters of the money Washington gets. Now the payroll tax is not progressive. It's actually the opposite. The higher your income, the less percentage of it you pay on the payroll tax. That's right. The payroll tax's non-progressivity reverses or cancels out the vast bulk of the income tax's progressivity. So if you put the two together, and they together are three quarters of what the federal government gets, you don't have any progressivity in the United States. But the worst is yet to come corporations, we haven't talked about that yet, because the income tax that I was referring to should have been called the personal or individual income tax. It's that tax paid by individuals, you, me, families, couples, and so on. The corporations pay a tax on their income, which is their net revenue, the difference between what they earn and the expenses they have. Once upon a time, the corporate income tax was significant. That is, the federal government relied in a major way on taxing businesses, not only taxing individuals. But those days are long gone. In 2015, the corporate income tax got a bare 11% of the federal government's taxation. That Only one in nine dollars flowing to Washington came out of business profits. That's because of the tax havens we talked about before the mid-break. That's because of all the tax gimmicks they use. That's because of the laws their lobbyists have gotten written to allow them to reduce their tax burden. That's right. The income tax on individuals gets more than four times as much money flowing into Washington as the tax on corporations.
0: We were talking about actually how this all kind of hangs together. And and you brought up deficits, you also brought up spending cuts. And something I really want to go back to because I think this is a really important point is that we actually don't know how they're gonna move forward because right now the House and the Senate Republicans are in different places. They're sort of right. taking different tax for how to pay for these tax cuts for rich people. Um but it sounds like either way, it's gonna be working families and middle class families holding the bag, whether it's because we're seeing massive spending cuts, like in these House and Senate Republican budgets, you know, you talked about Medicaid, but it's also nutrition assistance, right. it's housing, it's education, it's infrastructure. In the case of the House budget, it's actually even social security cuts, mm-hmm. um, targeting people with disabilities, meals on wheels, it goes on and on. So it could be spending cuts paying for these tax cuts for rich people to buy their second and third yacht online or not. Um, but it could also be because they jack up the deficit, right? That's right. But
14: I don't think we should look at these things as being terribly different in terms of what their ultimate goal is. Rest assured, if they jack up the deficit, which which I think is, is, is a very likely outcome, they will turn around immediately and say, oh, my goodness, look at these deficits. We really have to do something about Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security now, guys. And this isn't this doesn't take a great deal of imagination, their budget resolutions, even though they're not laws and these aren't binding, do say, we want to make huge cuts in Medicare and Medicaid. They say we want to make cuts in transportation, nutrition assistance, education. This is their agenda. And so they can use, even if they just use the the reconciliation instruction this time around, this is the 2018 budget to do tax cuts and jack up the deficit. If they were actually on time with the budget process the 2019 budget gets passed early next year so they can turn around literally like like immediately like turn right. around well before the midterms and do all those cuts in the next budget resolution don't even start
0: saying that it's too soon it's too soon we're still fighting <laughs> this one but but point taken right but but i i think you know your 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 point about the deficit and their relationship to it i think is 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 critical here yeah. right these are the people who claim to hate deficits literally every w- phrase out of their mouth sometimes you know it it seems and every word every every phrase on their web pages about where they stand is all about deficit reduction and, and we can't add to the deficit. And, and they will actually point at Democrats and accuse Democrats of wanting to just, you know, jack up the deficit. But now they're quietly saying, at least they've said this in the Senate, um, that they're totally fine with right. deficits if it's to finance tax cuts for rich people and corporations.
14: And this is a dynamic, I think, that that's so important to understand. It. I think it, it, it's, it's really fundamental to the politics around the budget. The hysteria that that Republicans whip up around the deficit is entirely instrumental. It's not, it, I, it, it's not sincere. It's entirely instrumental. It's about attacking programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security that they know are extremely popular. It's a ploy. It's right. And the only way that they can get people they think they to support cuts to those programs because they're so popular and effective is to claim we have no choice. There's this massive debt. We're going to have a debt crisis otherwise. It's, it's a ploy. They don't really care about the deficit. If, or, and, and if they do care about the deficit, then I hope they'll prove me wrong by not supporting a budget that jacks up the deficit by one and a half trillion dollars to pay for tax cuts for million, for tax cuts for millionaires. But this is the game plan is you cut taxes, you jack up the deficit, and then you freak out about the deficit and insist that now we have to cut programs. And, and it's important for people that are not in on this ploy to not play into it. So, we are not on the verge of a looming debt crisis. And when you play into the hysterical rhetoric that we hear about deficits from from Republicans who just want to cut Medicare and Medicaid, you're only making their their job easier. I mean, look, we 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 are a country uh, that 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 if we if we're giving tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires, and someone's going to pay for that, and that's going to be everyone else. This is not a country that has unlimited fiscal resources, and so we should use them effectively. But We are not in a place where we have no choice but to make huge Medicare and Medicaid and social security cuts or otherwise we'll face a debt crisis. We're a strong, wealthy country that can take care of its citizens if we choose to do that
0: when you talk about limited resources right it makes me think of Ron Johnson who just last weekend was actually caught saying and I not not caught because yeah. he was not a hot mic he said on purpose and boys heard and seen <laughs> intentionally saying that we have limited resources when it comes to shelter and food um, and uh, and health care and th- that those are limited resources and that only people who are uh, have earned the privilege and who can afford them them, should have them. That was almost a direct quote of what yeah. he said when he was speaking at a to a group of students, actually, who I'm sure did not appreciate hearing that. And that clip went viral. Um, but, but what he's actually saying is well, the things that we decide, we as people in power, are going to be limited and restricted to those who can't afford them um, are things that we would actually like to see be even more limited right. because we'd like the resources belonging to the top earners in this country to be even less limited, right? I mean, that's effectively what he's saying. It's it's a massive funneling of wealth upward, um, and they're not even really trying to hide it anymore.
14: No, they're not. And I, I think that, that fundamentally, that that is right or wrong. At least it's in, sincere. That's their vision for for the country. is a place where the wealthy get all of get get even more wealth and and get all the wealth that they can lay their hands on, and and everybody else, you know, housing, food, healthcare. Some level of retirement security, those those are things that you're on your own. Best of luck. Yeah. And, and you know, by the way, Johnson, at, when he, he's on the budget committee and his whole advocacy around this budget, this budget, the, the whole point of the budget is to increase the deficit by a trillion and a half dollars to pass tax cuts. His whole presentation was, my God, look at these deficits. I mean – to, like I, I said earlier, they will turn around and say, my God, look at these deficits. They don't even it. have to turn around. They can amazingly do both of those things at the same time. We have to cut taxes and raise deficits. And my God, look at these deficits. Senator Johnson manages to say both of those things at the same time. It's remarkable.
0: I don't know which one's walking and which one's chewing gum, but uh, amen. So in the last minute or so that I have with you, Harry, um, this isn't just a fight that we're going to sit idly by and watch um, and eat popcorn while we enjoy hypocrisy and and point out uh, lies and, and measure Pinocchios. Um, this is a fight that the American people are going to engage in. And like with health care, if people raise their voices, they can stop this massive funneling upward of resource. From everyday Americans up to the very top, um, how can people get involved? What do they need to know about how they can make this pivot from what has been na- uh, originally framed as a healthcare fight, and now is is sort of refashioned with new Groucho Marx glasses as a tax and budget fight? We
14: we need the same mobilization that we had on healthcare. That's what stopped healthcare with people saying no, and and we need the same thing. We need people to say no to tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires paid for by by everyone else. And so there's, there's, I think, several resources that are real important here. Um, TrumpTaxToolkit.org. This will be constantly updated with the most important targets in Congress and with resources to reach them and tell them no. I would encourage people to go also to NotOnePenny.org, which lays out a very simple request for members of Congress. Don't give millionaires, billionaires, and big corporations even a penny of tax cuts. Tax reform is great. Let's do real tax reform. That shouldn't involve giving rich people and corporations a giant, a tax cut at all. And I would also encourage people to go to handsoff.org. Big thing you can do at handsoff.org, share your stories. Tell us how budget, how these kinds of cuts to things like disability programs or the environment or education. We're all touched by the budget in some way. Tell us how that affects you because those personal stories are really what moves the debate. You know, we talk a lot here in, in terms of numbers and, 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 and big picture and percentages. And those are important. But really what, what, what I think moves the debate more than anything else is, is, a, is, a personal, is personal stories that illustrate what is actually at stake here for Americans around the country.
1: We've just heard clips today starting with the majority report reminding us that the moron who came up with trickle-down economics 40 years ago is still shuffling the same nonsense. The David Pagman Show explained how Republicans created tax-cut myths. Counterspin spoke to Dean Baker about some of the ins and outs of the current proposed tax plan. The Young Turks listened to a Fox News host call out lies about the Trump tax plan and also pointed out the endless pattern of hypocrisy regarding Republicans' stated opinion about running deficits. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour explained the truth behind corporate taxes. Richard Wolf explained on Economic Update how corporations have rigged our tax system against us for the past several decades. And finally, we just heard Off-Kilter lay out the Republican strategy to intentionally run up deficits while decrying deficits as an excuse to cut incredibly popular social programs, as well as your marching orders for how to fight back. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
15: Hey Jay, this is Jesse from Seattle. and I was just calling about your last episode on the last on the Las Vegas shooting. You had this one guy talk about how the sort of war on guns is the same as the dynamic of the war on drugs, where only African Americans and minorities are the only ones who are affected buy it and that white people essentially have an unlimited right to it and this got me thinking about how you would create a justice system that prevents people from doing bad things like boning guns in this scenario but that also wouldn't create a mass incarceration state and wouldn't be biased against minorities or the poor or any other groups like that because for me you know I know our current system has a lot of problems and I've certainly thought a lot about that and I can think of some you know lower level like surface changes like simply legalizing marijuana would be a big first step but how would a fundamentally different justice system work I'd love to hear your thoughts on that or maybe you can see a full episode in regards to how to change our justice system into one that's actually just but still effective at preventing crime.
16: Hi, I'm Colin. I'm currently actually uh I'm deployed down in uh, Florida as a contractor with FEMA. And um the two main companies that FEMA contracts through were known as WSP, Inspection Services, and Vanguard Emergency Management Services, Vanguard EMS. What I wanted to call and kind of like give a heads up of is that, you know, this is this is the kind of work where the, uh, the beliefs of the people on the ground have a big impact in just who is getting help and who isn't, and um, unfortunately there, there's... Kind of a, a prevalence of mindsets, you know, that's kind of like, you know, like looking at people with, um, you know, through their own like racial prejudices or biases. And you probably have people in neighborhoods that are really should be getting help that they're not because the uh, majority of the people that go after this, you know, come from a certain political or, you know, construction background. So it seems to me that people on the left and like, in, you know, progressive circles in general that are really missing not only this direct opportunity to act, you know, in the stead of the federal government and make sure that it is meeting one of the real needs that the government should provide for its people in relief after a disaster, but also that, that it is actually rather, you know, good paying work because you get out here, you're deployed working, you know, seven days a week. So obviously it's not something you know everyone could do, but, uh, for a lot of like young, you know, progressive, you know, progressive-minded people who don't have, uh, you know, a family like family obligations, it's definitely something that they should get out to do where they can make a difference. And, you know, they can raise money, either you know for themselves and also for other causes as well. So, that's just the uh, the main things to get out there. So, they're still hiring and putting people through. FEMA is still very, very behind in all of this. You know, Harvey and Irma both broke records uh, even before Maria got here. So. Those two companies are hiring, and it would be great to see people who actually believe in government getting these uh, government contractor positions instead of, you know, more uh, libertarian-minded people. So, uh, all the best. Good luck with the show. Thanks for the work you do. Bye.
17: Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your best-of-the-left Patreon member calling in from Connecticut about Patreon. I recently made the switch from PayPal to Patreon, and at first I was like, what are these emails with regards to there's a new episode? Like, duh, I can see on my feed there's a new episode. In fact, I'm already listening to it by the time I get the email. But then I started realizing that, and if you've listened to me for a little bit, you know that I almost always listen as I'm driving to and from work, and the episode ends, and it goes archived, and it skips on to the next podcast I'm listening to, and I never really actively read the show notes. Um, I would look at them briefly in the beginning, but as I'm driving, you know, I'm not watching that. So, um now with the patreon it's kind of cool actually i've I've come to embrace those emails now and i save them as unread until i'm ready to look at the show notes and figure out what activism did i not take an action on yet that i want to consider doing so or what show notes or what links you've listed in it and i find it much more efficient at least for me to process that so just a feedback with patreon i think it's a great move um So then I became concerned what would happen if I were to share the episode, being that it's a members-only feed. um, And I did some quick tests, and I found that I could text the message or email the message to somebody, and they were still able to listen to the episode. So in case someone was concerned about that, um, I checked that out to make sure that uh, they weren't getting a dead link or something that they couldn't use. So anyway, I think it's overall great, wonderful, thank you, and stay awesome.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, first of all, excuse me, everyone. I just have a personal note uh, paging Amy from Alabama. Please call back. Uh, You have a very interesting perspective. We want to hear it, but you had a terrible connection on your last call. So maybe find uh, just a better spot to use your cell phone. Uh, Maybe use a landline. Best case scenario, you could record a message on like a voice memo app on a smartphone and just email that to me. Either of those, you know, any of those options would be great. Uh, For the rest of you, Amy is a queer, physically disabled, progressive Responsible gun owner from Alabama, so you will not be surprised to hear that she has some perspectives on the recent gun control episode and progressive policies on gun control in general. Uh, so we would love to hear those. the The message it was just cutting way, way out too much to uh, to play on the show. So Amy, please call back one way or another. Secondly, uh, I've not been doing a good enough job of expressing the interesting conversations and and all of the fun things going on on the best of left social network Uh, so this is a project that i launched just within the last couple of months it's sort of a two-track project here on one hand there are volunteers helping out the show enormously i have uh, you know there's a whole Gaggle of volunteer listeners who are helping the show by volunteering to listen to this or that program and then just submit. Clips that they think are, you know, worthy of being uh, considered to be put on the show. And then there's a small team of editors who take those notes and actually clip out those segments and send them to me. And it's one of those, you know, many hands makes for light work sort of situations, so no one's being worked to the bone. They just work together, and it's been working really well so far. Uh, we, we actually do need a little bit more help. There are a lot of shows that currently don't have volunteers signed up to to listen to them. So if you are interested in that, don't think that the opportunity has passed you by, uh, go ahead and sign up at the uh, uh, just for the social network in general. And then there are some articles listed there for, you know, basically start here read-through, little orientation articles that help you figure out what's what and how to get involved. Secondly, though, it's a social network. You know, we're having interesting conversations. Most recently, we're having an ongoing conversation about the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. Uh, I I asked a question because I'm having some some conflicting thoughts about comparing the years 2016 and 2017. You know, 2016 is sort of famous for having been hated. It was such a terrible election campaign, and it, it was... Um, at the very least foreboding <laughs> and, and there was a lot of tension and anxiety levels were very high across the board, you know, for all members of the political spectrum, there was a lot wrong happening in 2016, but this year, 2017 is, you know, I, I would say pretty substantively worse. And, and so I started asking people how they felt about these Two different years. You know, you, you can go by the numbers, and you can recognize that one is worse than the other. But does one feel worse than the other? And there's a whole range of responses people have been getting. So that's been interesting. And and the most recent conversation leads to what is probably going to be an upcoming episode. I uh, I've mentioned to you recently about the uh, the this source of science, inspiration, knowledge. The Greater Good Science Center, and there was this great article about the Colin Kaepernick slash NFL slash you know uh, anthem protests and uh, you know and everything that that entails. And they wrote this article titled "The Psychology of Taking a Knee," and they do this really great job of looking at the psychology of everyone involved, the people who are protesting, the people who are supporting the protesters, the people who are very vehemently rejecting the protesters and fundamentally misunderstanding, whether intentionally or not, what the whole protest is about. But, as always, it's it's even more complicated than just being against the protesters politically or not wanting to support them or having a knee-jerk reaction and misunderstanding there are psychological reasons that help us understand why those knee-jerk reactions happen so for instance there's just this one great quote that i pulled out of the article that uh, that i think is the most condensed summarized version of of sort of what they're talking about. And so just this one little bit of the article says, Group membership affects interpretation of body language because groups develop norms and expectations around behavior, language, and life, says our UC Berkeley colleague Rudolfo mendoza Denton, an expert on intergroup communication. Quote, "breaking these norms is used intentionally to signal disagreement with the norms as well as to signal that one is not conforming it sparks strong emotion and backlash precisely because of its symbolic meaning a threat to the status quo" Unquote. and boy do conservatives love the status quo i mean if, if conservatism means anything it means adherence to the status quo and, and resisting changes to the status quo. So framed in that way and understanding not just police violence or black people speaking out when they should know their place or I- any of these sort of surface level understandings of politics and and this particular issue, when you get deep into it, understanding that those knee-jerk reactions would be there basically no matter what the circumstances, because fundamentally it's a reaction to people signaling that they are not conforming. And not conforming is, is the cardinal sin against conservatives. So... Those are the kind of conversations happening on, uh, not only on the network. Some of this is happening on the members only bonus shows as well. And, and as I said, you know, this is probably uh, the, the, the NFL protest. We, we touched on it a little bit with the Puerto Rico episode, but obviously a lot more needs to be said. So it, it's on the docket. It's, it's going to be an upcoming episode. Uh, but as, <laughs> as every media outlet in the country is having the same problem, I am struggling to figure out what topics deserve to be covered with a finite amount of time. For me, a very finite amount of time. There's just so much that deserves to be highlighted. It, uh, it's sort of an impossible task. So I haven't gotten to the NFL protests in a lot of detail recently, but hope to in the future. So in the meantime, if you want to sign up on the social network, the link to do that is right in the show notes. It's either on the device you're using right now to listen to the show, or you can just go to bestofleft.com and click on the show notes of this episode or really any of the recent episodes. There's a little link. It says, uh, you know, join the Best of Left Social Network, and that is your invite. It's a private network, so there's not just, like, a link I can share with everyone or, or a URL that I can tell you to, to go to. It's a, you know, a private link, but as a listener of the show, you are invited. So you just go to the show notes, click the link, and it'll sweep you right in so if you have comments on this or anything i've been talking about or anything else or if you're amy from alabama call us again 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we're putting out there and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington DC my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
9: and
6: it's a crime how we get so trained? We could see past our sad story